If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you. Whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or anybody who is really just interested in languages. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and alongside Dr. Marie-José Bisson, we are the Language Scientists, and this is our podcast. We are senior lecturers in psychology at De Montfort University, and we conduct research into the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So whether you're a language learner, teacher, or researcher, sit back and enjoy. And today we have Dr. Ana Pelicer-Sanchez on our podcast, so welcome. Ana is a, an associate professor at the Institute of Education at University College London. Uh, she completed her undergraduate in English studies at the University of Mercia and did her MA and PhD in, at the University of Nottingham. Was that in psychology or...? It was in applied linguistics. In applied linguistics. Okay, cool. I have another linguist here. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's research primarily uses eye-tracking methods to study how we learn vocabulary through reading. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? University of Mercia, that is not in the UK. <laughs> uh, it's not. <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. So I'm originally from Spain, as you might be able to tell uh, by my accent. I grew up in a very monolingual environment. So um, my family spoke Spanish, and that's the language that I learned when I was growing up. Um, and I learned English mainly at school and also out of school classes and some summer camps because I really liked it. Um, and I then, as uh, you were saying, I studied English studies at the University of Mercia. So that's where I continue learning uh, uh, English and, and becoming more proficient in, uh, in the English language. Um, as part of my undergraduate degrees, I also spent one year as an exchange uh, student at the University of Birmingham in the UK. That was my first experience in a second language environment. And oh, cool. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was like eye-opening experience for me. Um, and then while, um, yes, part of my undergraduate studies, I also studied German for five years as a foreign language. And uh, yeah, I'm still a language learner. You never stop. So I'm trying to learn Portuguese at the moment. So that's a bit of my language background uh, uh, history, I would say. Oh, that's fun. So when did you, how old were you when you first started learning English in school? Was it like primary or? Yeah, I was Four, I would say, when I started. Oh, that's uh, so cool. Four or five years old. Yeah, yeah so they started really early then. Yeah, yeah, we started at the yeah primary school, and I think I started even a little bit earlier because I had an older brother, oh, and he was already yeah. studying English, and I was really intrigued, and yeah. you know, I wanted to learn more. So we had these out of out of school, uh, you know, evening classes, and and I was doing that. I mean, we were mainly playing yeah, uh, games but... in English, but yeah, I was uh, yeah from a very early age, I was really. Uh, into learning English and I wanted to, you know, learn more. So, yeah, I started, yeah, I would say four or five years old That's when I first cool. started. Yeah. So, okay, you moved to the UK then for your MA and PhD. <laughs> so you finished English studies and then you decided what? How did you how did you go from English studies to your graduate degrees? Yeah, so well, that's a good uh, good question. Um, um, 
during my undergraduate studies, I realized I really, really enjoyed um, all the modules that were related to language learning and language processing. So applied linguistics and second language learning, psycholinguistics. So I really wanted to continue studying those areas. So after I graduated, um, I um, applied for an MA in applied linguistics at the University of Nottingham. So I, I came to the UK, completed my master's uh, degree, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it as well. So it was like, okay, this is a confirmation that I really like this yeah. area. But after my uh, my MA, um, I moved back to Spain, trying to remember now. Yes. <laughs> so I lived in Spain and in Germany as well to practice my German. And I did my teacher training in Spain. I was teaching English for a while. Um, and while I loved teaching, I knew from the very beginning I wanted to teach and, and, and I've always loved teaching, I realized that my passion was really learning more about how to teach. So I wanted to teach. I want to definitely work within education, but I wanted to teach about those modules that I really, really felt passionate about. Um, and I really wanted to know more about how to make teaching more effective. And this is really the reason why I um, decided to go back to university after teaching for a while. And I applied for scholarships to start my PhD. And this is really why uh, I started my academic career, really. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you're, so your research is on vocabulary learning. Yes. To study how people become more fluent yeah. language learners, right? Yeah. Okay. So... How, so what do we mean by like looking at how we learn vocabulary? What what does that mean to you and how do you use that in your research? Yeah, when I started learning about l languages and how to learn and how to teach uh, languages, vocabulary was an area that really st stood up for me and I found it really exciting and, and, and fascinating because we all know that vocabulary is a, is a main component of language proficiency, right? Like if you're learning a language, you need the words. And I mean, even for you're learning your first language, when you watch children develop, it's they have they, they have a word now, they have two words now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they are they're referred words are referred as the building blocks of language, right? Mm -hmm. So first language, any second or any other additional language, you need those words to actually communicate successfully in the language, also understand different text. So we know that second language learners need to have huge vocabulary sizes, right? Like you do need yeah. to know. So it's not just enough to know a few words. Uh, you can't get by with that. I mean, maybe for, you know, a couple of very specific things. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> in the coffee to, shop. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you do need to build your um, your vocabulary size and you need to have huge vocabulary sizes really to be able to communicate in a variety of contexts. So I always found it really intriguing when I started reading and learning about these, how do actually people build these massive dictionaries, mm -hmm. right? Uh, these massive lexicons in, 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 in the, the, while they're uh, learning um, a second or foreign language. So we know that in the majority of contexts, we don't have enough time in the classroom to actually study all those words and word families in a more explicit way. It's, a, it's a, We know it's a very effective way, right? If we devote one hour now to study a few words in any language we choose, we'll learn them and you know that would be an effective way of learning vocabulary. But we can't do that with all the words that 
we are supposed to to learn and master. So I was really intrigued by these and thinking, how do people actually build? Because there are very, a lot of successful language learners in the world. So how do they actually manage to do these? So this is really what got me started into vocabulary and vocabulary teaching and learning. And we know that one main source of vocabulary growth in a second language is reading and also in a first language. When we are learning our first language, after we've, uh, uh, um, we learn how to read, we know that reading is one of the major sources mm -hmm. of uh, vocabulary growth. And we've seen in research as well that second language learners also improve their vocabulary through reading. So this is really the area that I, I really, it's not the only one, of course, that I investigate. I uh, look at different um, ways of improving our vocabulary knowledge, but a lot of my research has focused on reading and how in an incidental way, so without vocabulary learning being your focus, how you can actually improve uh, your vocabulary knowledge and your vocabulary size by reading for pleasure and engaging in reading and processing different texts. Yeah, and using the things that you're interested in outside of, I'm going to sit and learn a language. Yeah. Exactly, because we do um, need to find ways of maximizing our exposure to to the language, right? And, right? and, you know, maybe you feel like studying vocabulary with an app for 30 minutes, and that's fantastic. But sometimes you just want to do other things and you yeah. know, just read a text because you want to know what's going on today, the world, I don't know. And and through reading, you can expand your uh, vocabulary and you can improve, I mean, of course, many other aspects of language, but vocabulary in particular is is uh, improved with, uh, can be improved by reading. So yeah, that's what I wanted to know more about. <laughs> that's cool. And now you've studied both children as they learn a new language and adults. Can you explain how they differ? Are they are they very different, actually? Uh, well, I was going to say I thought they were different, but now maybe I'm assuming that wrong. <laughs> it is. No, no, it's a very interesting comparison. I There are many differences, of course. I've, most of my research has been conducted with adult learners, but I've done a few studies with, uh, with younger learners, with kids, mainly around 11 years old or so. Hmm. Um, it really depends on the age, I would say. Yeah. Um, of course, there are there are differences, and when we think about reading, for example, one of the main differences is that if you are researching uh, kids who haven't fully developed their literacy skills yet, and you're doing this study on how they learn vocabulary from reading in a second language. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not only that, but they are also developing their reading skills in the first language sometimes. Yeah. So the process is is very different. And of course, you know, when you look at reading and learning from reading and, you know, or eye movement patterns, as I also do in, in, in some of my research, it's uh, the, the patterns you're going to find are, are different, of course. Um, and of course, if we think about data collection, that's also a very interesting <laughs> uh, difference. In what, As I was uh, saying, in most of my research, I use eye tracking so to record participants' eye movements mm -hmm. while they're processing and reading a text on a computer screen. And it's quite important that people don't move <laughs> a yeah. lot during the experiment so that we get good um, and quality data. And uh, of course, you can imagine with kids, it's much more difficult for them to stay <laughs> um, still and not move. And we try to, you know, keep experiments short so yeah. that they can do it. But I didn't yeah. even think about that part. Yeah, imagine. And all the experience of my kids, I know full well that's... 
Yeah. I thought production errors were hard to study. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is is very interesting and I, I really loved it. But of course, you have to factor in that you will need more time. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be participants that you will lose because there is going to be a lot of movement yeah. and things like that. But yeah, I would say in terms of data collection with kids, that's one of the main differences. Yeah, yeah so. right there. But that's really cool. Okay, so... Take me back with your research. What's a typical research study for you? What like, when you're doing a research study because you want to understand more about language learning? Yeah. Take me through it. What happens if I come into the lab or if one of my kiddos comes into the lab? What happens? Yeah. So usually I'm thinking about um, I will focus on the studies on reading, mm-hmm. which is what we are mainly talking about today. Um, so usually um, we would record, um, uh, sorry, we would collect data individually mm-hmm. um, in in our eye tracking lab. And you would come uh, to the lab. And of course, we go through all the ethics uh, mm-hmm. uh, procedures and all the information, sort out any questions you may have. We explain very clearly how long it's going to last and what you're going to do. And mainly what we do is a reading activity. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it might be um, just reading a text on a computer screen. Sometimes it presents both text and pictures, sometimes text and uh, so written text and audio. So depending on the study, we would ask you to read a different type of text. So while participants are reading, we would record their eye movements. So of course, um, we have to always explain this very clearly to the participants at the beginning and and uh, we explain how it works and we cal- calibrate the equipment to make sure that it will provide uh, um, good data and the quality of the data will be um, what we expect. And we just basically ask people to read a text on the computer screen and uh, yeah, try not to move too much. In reading experiments, what we do is to use, most of the times we use a, a chin rest mm-hmm. so that you... Yeah, to try to minimize head movements. And yeah, we just ask people to read for comprehension, read as natural. I, I, we always say as natural as possible. Yeah. Of course, this is not you reading a well, book at home. Staring exactly. At someone staring at you. <laughs> exactly. And you know that your eyes are being recorded yeah. and that, you know, we always say as natural as possible. Yeah. So, I always get this question when presenting results from uh, from from studies like this. How natural is this? Well, it is as natu- as close as possible to a natural reading experience. But right, is slightly different, of course. Um, and and yeah, and after the reading activity, we would perform different tests. So usually comprehension tests and vocabulary tests, mm-hmm. since we're uh, interested in in vocabulary learning. Mm-hmm. So we might ask questions about the text, about the words that you encounter, whether you learned anything about those words. So there is usually yeah a range of tests that we do after the reading, and that's I would say that's the general uh, design. Of course, at the end we um, tend to have a chat with the participants and reveal the real uh, yeah. you know intention and the real aim of the study and sort out any questions, but. That's the usual uh, procedure, I would say, for this type of, you know, eye-tracking studies into learning from reading. Is there like a research study that you've most recently conducted or written about or something that you'd like to share to explain like really cool findings about this? Hmm. It's difficult to choose. It is uh, hard. Like, of course, hmm. <laughs> but I would probably talk about a recent one that I conducted with a PhD student of mine, Andy Wang. 
um, where we used eye tracking as well to examine the processing of um, different types of subtitles when watching mm. movies. So it's a it's another type of reading because people right. are reading uh, subtitles. So we were interested in how people process um, subtitles particularly focusing on bilingual subtitles. So you know that when you're watching a movie or a TV, you could choose different types of uh, subtitles. And one type of subtitle that is actually quite common in some parts of the world is bilingual subtitles, where you have both your first language and your second language text. I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes people say, oh my God, that's a lot. I mean, how am I going to watch this movie and then try to read both the, 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 you know, the translation? Right in my first language, but then also the, um, you know, the second language text, that's way too much. I can't cope with that. Yeah. We've heard those things before. So uh, in this study, what we did was to really see, use eye tracking to see how learners would process all that text that was presented in the screen in bilingual subtitles um, while watching a documentary. Mm -hmm. And we compare that to different types of subtitles. And, and of course, we looked at how that was related to um, comprehension and vocabulary learning as well. And it was interesting to see how second language learners actually distributed their attention, right? I mean, you have a lot of input and you have a lot of stimuli. You have the, you know, the dynamic image moving in the movie. And you also have the L1 text, the L2 text. So you have a lot of, and of course the audio. So it was very interesting to see, to use eye tracking to see how they um, distributed and split their attention uh, among these different types of um, input and type of uh, um, stimuli. So we were able to see that when uh, processing, at least with our participant population, when processing bilingual subtitles, most learners uh, tended to spend most of the time on the L1, so the mm -hmm. L1 translation. And that was related then with clear advantages of the bilingual subtitle condition for comprehension. And, and yeah, it seems that, um, yeah, they seem to spend more time, at least with this participant population, right. of course, it's important to know <laughs> that this might not happen with absolutely every learner around the world. But with this population that we investigated, there was a tendency to rely more on the first language. And it makes sense because you get the meaning faster, right? right if you away. look at the translation, exactly. And that was also also related to uh, advantage of bilingual subtitles for the acquisition of the meaning of new words, but not so much about the form. And that makes uh. sense because if you're looking at the L1 line and the L1 text, you get immediately the, um, the meaning, mm -hmm. but you don't spend that much time processing the written form. Because you don't need to. Exactly. So... Yeah, the, this, these were some of the things that we were able to, to find out. And I think um, there is a lot of potential in, in the use of, um, you know, bilingual materials. We, we now have access to bilingual books and, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think with this study, we show that with eye tracking, we can actually get a better understanding of how people process all these different um input sources that we present to them, how they cope with that and how they allocate their cognitive and attentional resources to um, to, to deal with this type of, uh, of input and the benefits that they can get from it. So this is certainly an area that I'd love to and I am uh, continuing researching now. Yeah, provide the teachers with those resources so that they can better support their students as they acquire this, this other language or Absolutely. languages. Yeah. Yes. What I, I really enjoy about your research is it's very applied. I mean, you started off by describing you're interested in this area because your question is, okay, well, how do we 
How do we build that vocabulary? And this feels like something that is very much, it lives in research, obviously, because you're using research methods to get at the heart of the why and the how. But it's also something that's very realistic and very applied. I mean, I'm constantly trying to build my vocabulary in my different languages. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like you got to, <laughs> yeah, you're always like trying to absorb it as, as easily as you can. And then to like refresh it when you need it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you're a language learner, you will have to deal with these, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is no way out. You have to learn vocabulary. And I think, and nowadays that we have access to so many different types of materials uh, and, and resources online, I think it's quite important that as researchers, we find out what is the most effective way of doing it so that we can actually uh, provide well-founded recommendations to um, teachers, but also to learners. I think it's quite important that researchers engage in conversations with the, the, the different, um, you know, not just with other researchers, yeah. but also with uh, learners, with uh, teachers, policymakers, and of course, app designers, materials writers. I mean, I think it's quite important that we, you know, work together to try to make it more effective. That's always be my goal. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so I have my task now as a researcher to continue speaking with others. Uh, I will do that. <laughs> I was going to also ask you if you had recommendations to, now I'm going to give you two different groups here, to language learners, so people who do want to develop that second or third or fourth language, um, how they can best go about doing that, but also like the language teachers. So how can they encourage their students, adults or children, to do this? Yeah, so for learners, I would say try to do as much as you can, maximize exposure. We know that learning vocabulary is, it, it can be fun mm -hmm. and it should be fun, but it, it is um, tricky sometimes because you have to learn, you know, loads of words that we were saying earlier. So there is no magic trick. It's not something that you're just going to develop in, you know, one week of intensive vocabulary study. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. And we all know that. So try to maximize your exposure to language. And of course, try to do it while having fun. So as I was saying, we have exposure to loads of uh, materials and resources now. So try to find the one that you enjoy the most and try to do a combination of things. Yeah. So, you know, using an app for, uh, you know, to, to study vocabulary and complete some specific vocabulary activities is great. But then also try to, I don't know, watch a movie with subtitles, read a book or read the news online or, you know, find this blog that you really like mm -hmm. in English and try to engage with it. Try to practice it with other people in even if it's, you know, online interaction. So really try to do as much as you can. Try to do a variety of things and make the most of the resources that we have available now. And... To teachers, I would say something similar as well. I mean, a good vocabulary uh, teaching program would include a variety of methods and a variety of input sources to try to ensure that we have opportunities for learners to encounter new vocabulary through written exposure, so through reading, mm -hmm. also through listening, but also opportunities to interact and, and practice uh, a spoken mm -hmm. vocabulary as well and productive vocabulary. Of course... Again, there should be a combination of methods. So having some time during the week to practice a specific vocabulary that we are learning this week and that we know learners need to know is great, but also try to implement that with opportunities to encounter that vocabulary in reading, in listening, in oral activities, right. in you know pair work. So 
a combination of methods is, uh, as we know, always best because we also know that learners will have different preferences and learners will have different um uh, will benefit more or less from different approaches. So having a balanced approach would, in a way, also guarantee that all learners get something that they enjoy. And I think enjoyment, as we know from the second language learning literature as well, is key. Um, trying to make language learning fun and try to find ways to really engage and motivate um, the students. I think that's also key. Yeah. It's obviously super easy to say, not that <laughs> easy to implement. It's hard to work uh, into your life, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you've given a lot of different examples. I mean, as you're on your commute, you can be listening to an audiobook in another language. When you are settling down for the night, I mean, I have my, my Facebook in French. <laughs> yeah, no, <it's, laughs> that's a great all the, thing. You know, the tool names and things like that for the, the different files and settings and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And nowadays, I mean, as I was saying, we have access to loads of resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a dream. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us a bit about your research in the area and give us all some really great suggestions for how we can improve our vocabulary. Thank you so much. And yeah, good luck to everyone out there in their yeah language learning experiences. So our next podcast is going to be uh, about creative assessments. So how we might measure language learning in a bit of an atypical way. So we will have Dr. Alex Mangold from the University Aberystwyth so I'm just going to take a minute and remind you all that now is the time to tell us what you think and what you want to hear about. So please, if you could just take five minutes to go into our show notes and click on the link for our survey. And I promise it's really short. The survey is going to help both Marie and I uh, know about what you would like to hear for the next series. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to the British Academy for funding our podcast. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and you've been listening to the Language Scientist Podcast. Podcast.